So we've been doing this series called Biblical Sexuality. I hope you have been enjoying it. We are going to jump into part five today. And I'd like to start off by reading 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1 to 5. Before I do that, let's pray. Thank you, Father, that your word says that we are not to be conformed to this world, but we are to be transformed through the renewing of our mind, that we wouldn't conform to the mold of what culture says, but we want to submit, God, to what your word says around these topics. And we pray for family units. We pray, God, that you would strengthen the family unit, that you would strengthen marriages and husbands and wives and singles and our young adults and our children, God. We want to know what it means to serve you today in this year that we live in. So we pray, God, that you speak to us through your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourself more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Today we're going to talk about sex. We are doing a series on sexuality, and up until now, we've spoken about gender, we've spoken about this, um, we've spoken about worship, we had the sexologist come and talk about worship and purity, we've looked at this creation design, what it means that God, when he said in the beginning, what this creation design was all about, and if you were here last week, we spoke about homosexuality. So today I want to PG this um, sermon, this sermon topic today, Parental guidance is advised, so if you're sitting here with your child that hasn't gone off to kids' ministry, I want you to just to discreetly or to, with discernment, decide if you want to send your children out. But I feel that it's suitable for teenagers, I'm comfortable to preach the sermon to my teenage boys. Do we have any art teachers in the room today? Can I see by a show of hands? We've got one sitting right here in the front. I'm always interested to know what it's like to teach young people, especially junior high children, things about art. So you get sculptures, David by Michelangelo, and I'd love to see the faces and the expressions on the young people. Many of them would be like, wow, such amazing artwork. The rest would have embarrassment and shock, and more likely, teacher getting an email from the parents going, how dare you show this to my class? He is, well, he is naked. So we get all these, um, we get a, a narrative of sexuality. We get culture and the world telling us a definition of what nudity is and sex and sexuality. And I want to say this morning, right from the beginning, that we don't just have a body, you are a body. Your skeleton, your nervous system, your hair, your skin, your sexual organs, your mind, your memory bank, your smile, your personality, it's all you. And there is this idea in the world that says the real you is on the inside, your body isn't really the real you. And I wanna to say to you this morning that we live in a culture that's really obsessed 
with body image and this shell that we so-called live in. And it obviously breeds a lot of insecurities and challenges when it's such a sexified culture that we live in. And many couples have this debate. I don't know if you've ever had this debate. I've had this debate with my wife before, where she says, you need to love me for me, not my body. And I find that very difficult to separate loving her for her and not loving her in her entirety. It's like me asking the question, well, um, I need you to love me, but not my personality. Is that possible? See, you, your body and your real you are interconnected. You can't split them apart. I wanna say to you today is that you are a body, not just you have a body, but you are a body. And I'm interested to know when we talk about as a family, some of the conversations that you've had about bodies and around sexuality and around nudity and around sex. I don't know how many of you have grown up in a family where you've been open to talk about sex. I know that I've got close friends of ours where this topic was just a dinner time conversation, that the parents would openly talk around, talk about sex around the dinner table while they're eating food. Maybe others of us have grown up in a family where this topic was never, ever discussed. Even in your adult years, you've never had this conversation with your parents before. So how was the topic of sex handled when you grew up in your family? What messages were conveyed regarding nudity, physical affection, reproduction, menstruation, masculinity, and femininity? Were you allowed to ask questions around this topic? And were those questions ever answered by your parents? What has the church said about sex? If I had to ask you the narrative that you in your lifetime have heard the, sec, heard the church say around sex, what has it been? For many of us, maybe the, the phrase, sex is dirty, save it for the one you love. For many, sex is synonymous with the, with the words dirty, shame, and guilt. And then we have social media and media and movies that portray an idea around sex. And unfortunately, these messages can taint our views of sexuality, causing us to feel shame about our bodies and the act of sex. A story is told of a man who went to a village out in a rural area next to water. And while he's having a conversation with some of the community, this crocodile jumps out and takes a child and goes back into the water. And he's shocked at how no one is doing anything. This crocodile has just pulled the child from the bank and everyone seems to quite, be quite normal about it. And then he notices that someone's missing an, a leg and someone's missing an arm. And he says, why is no one talking about this? And he says, it is impolite to talk about crocodiles in our community. It is something we do not talk about. And today in the world that we live in and even in church circles, we can very easily get to the point where this is a topic we don't talk about. Even though there's been so much pain and hurt and brokenness, especially in this world that we're living in, where people have suffered trauma when it comes to abuse 
and um, some of the topics that, that we see in this fallen and broken world, but something we don't want to talk about. And I want to say to you, when you read some of the stats today of children at the age of 12 normally being exposed to pornography, if you do not talk about it with your children as parents, pornography will explain sexuality to your children. If you do not talk about it with your children, their friends and their classmates are going to disciple them in the ways of sexuality. What a 12-year-old boy now on his phone in five minutes can get exposed to, the nudity and the sex that he can see within five minutes, they say is more than his great-grandfather ever saw in his entire lifetime. Just in those five minutes. So we need to talk about some of these things. I feel like in the sermon series, I've had to be brave and say, guys, we need to go there, even if it's uncomfortable. And next week, I want to go there. Next week, I want to talk about the new drug. And I want to talk about the pandemic that we see when it comes to this thing called pornography and how it's affecting children, teenagers, adults, and the older generation. I'm interested to know, should we as a church talk more about sex in our different ministries, whether it's youth or young adults, or Sunday morning or Sunday evening church service or in our life groups, should sex be a topic that we should talk more about? Should it be a sermon series you do once every five years? Should it be a sermon series you do once a year? Or should it be something we should talk about more often? I'm interested to get the feedback from you. Is this something that we should engage more about or should we say that's not a topic that we talk about, especially in church. If you've been tracking with us during the sermon series, we've gone back to Genesis 1 and 2 a lot. In Genesis 2, verse 23 to 25, it says, at last the man explained, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and leaves free accommodation and free rent and free food and free Wi-Fi and is then joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And today I want to teach you a Hebrew word called ikad. And this word, yeah, ikad, I'm going to get to it now. Now the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This word ikad is used to describe God. It is defined as the word one. So when we talk about Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we define them as one, Ikad. And in John Mark Comer's book called Loveology, he says, when Ikad is set alongside the word flesh, it means fused together at the deepest level. Ikad is when the lines blur between a man and a woman. Ikad is when we're wrapped so close with one another, with another human being, that we're not really sure who's who anymore. Ikad is when you know and you are known. Later in Genesis, we talk about Adam knew Eve and she fell pregnant. It is a term that is used for sexual relationships to know, to ikad, to be one flesh. Um, to know is a Hebrew idiom for sex and it's fitting. When you make love to another person, you know them at the deepest level. Something powerful happens in sex. Two humans become ikad. They each, they know each other, and this action cannot be undone. It is irreversible. And on um, Friday night, I got an opportunity to speak to our youth ministry. Lots of teenagers 
And it was interesting to talk around sexuality. And I was able to encourage them and explain a little bit about my story. I became one flesh with my wife on my wedding day. I was a virgin when I got married. And I tried to encourage our younger generation when we talk about sexual immorality and purity. Some of the questions they were asking is, what does it mean to be sexually pure? What does it mean to flee sexual immorality? And I tried to encourage them on this journey that I took on saying, God, I want to keep myself pure to the day that I get married, that I can give this gift to my wife on our wedding night. And I remember praying during my, in my years in my 20s saying, Jesus, please don't come back until I've lost my virginity. If there's one thing, just be patient, Lord. Maybe that's why he hasn't come back yet, because there's so many young Christians crying out to God to say, please be patient, let us just get married and be able to know what this whole thing of sex is actually all about. And I was tempted to say on Friday night to the young people, but I forgot to do it. And maybe if you're young here, sitting here today, you can repeat these words after me. I have a sex drive, and it is good, but I will be a good steward of my sex drive. No one wants to say that? <laughs> I have a sex drive and it is good. And God has called me to be a good steward of my sex drive. Let's paint a bit of a positive picture around this experience. I know it's very easy, again, the narrative, even in church, flee sexual immorality and run and it's bad and it's dirty and you shouldn't do it. But I wanna say to you, walk in purity, especially you young people. Sex is a gift from God, it is sacred, it is good, and it's meant for the context of marriage. Um, I read a, a um, survey that Edmund Lohman did, and he, and he looked at the question, what made a satisfying sex life? And he looked at people of different ages, in relationships, out of relationships, people that were fit and people that, won't, that weren't fit, and his conclusion was the most fulfilling sex is in the context of marriage, in the context of a covenant, in the context of commitment and loyalty and trust. It wasn't the most physically fit people that had the most fulfilling sex lives. It wasn't a certain race or a certain age, it was those people that were having sex in the context of a covenant relationship. The design that God has where sex is supposed to happen. And as a marriage officer, I get to do pre-marriage counseling with a lot of young people. And more and more today, I'm finding less couples have kept themselves pure to the day that they have their, their wedding. I'm finding young people have experimented from a young age. I think in South Africa, I think it's around 12 where the average age of, of someone being sexually in, intimate is happening. What does a 12-year-old know? What does a 13, 14, 16-year-old know about sexuality? A question that I get to ask is, what was your first consensual sexual experience like? Because that first consensual sexual experience can really frame sexuality and sex for you for the rest of your life. And if it's something that you were, that you were forced to do by a friend at a party in a back room or a cupboard or something that really wasn't sacred, how has that affected your view of sex and sexuality? We see the consequences of the fall. And even around this topic of sex today, I know there, is, there are trigger points here. 
And I know that if this, this topic can be sore for many people, that you need to get help to talk through some of the brokenness that you've experienced or the abuse that you have experienced in your life. But why did God create sexuality? What does sex mean to you and what is its purpose? And today I wanna to just look at three broad strokes. Firstly, the one that is very common, this isn't controversial at all. The three, three, first reason why God created sex was for procreation. So God created humans in his own being and in the image of God, he created them male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it and reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. I want you to notice one thing, that we were sexual before we were sinful. Genesis 3 is when we see the fall. This is when we see sin entering. But Genesis 1 and 2, it says we were sexual before we were sinful. And the first commandment in the Bible is not do not do this. It says, be fruitful and multiply. Have sex and reproduce and repopulate the earth. But who are we supposed to do this with? And if you read scripture, there's lots of verses in the Bible that have to counteract sexual immorality. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 is answering a whole bunch of questions to the church. And in this passage of scripture that I'm going to read, they have all these beliefs around sex. They believe sex was about rights and freedom, that I have a right to do anything. They believe that sex was about appetite. He says food, there was this phrase, food for your, the stomach and stomach for the food. So if you have a sexual appetite, just as you are hungry, go and eat. Just as you are sexually aroused, go and have sex. And they believe that the body didn't really matter, that God will destroy them both. So Paul says this before I get to 1 Corinthians chapter seven, just some context. He said, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food is made for the stomach and the stomach for food. And that is true, but someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised the Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. There's the word ikad, one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual immorality, from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And next week I need to go here. We need to talk about this Greek word porneia. We need to talk about sexual immorality. Porneia is where we get the word pornography from. And sexual immorality is any sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And yeah, we can talk more about that next week. 
But Richard B. Hayes in his commentary in 1 Corinthians 6 says, the Corinthians men who went to prostitutes were not asserting some new unheard of freedom. They were merely insisting on their right to continue participating in a pleasurable activity that was entirely normal to their own culture. I wanna say, what is the culture that we are living in today? What is the narrative of the culture? When our young people and our children are growing up with the influence of social media and TikTok and Instagram reels and the culture of today, what is the narrative of the culture of today around sexuality? What is it? Anything goes as long as it's consensual. Don't worry. If you have an appetite, just enjoy it. And your body is just a shell, a juicy robot that the real you, that disembodied ghost controls. There are no consequences for what you do. Express yourself. You can choose who you are. You can choose what you do. And if the church doesn't talk about sex, as I keep saying, we're leaving the field open to Hollywood, social media, pop culture, and the enemy, and the enemy to fill in all these blanks. This is an awkward time when we have to talk about these things, but if we don't talk about it in church, where else will we talk about it? So the first reason, young people, that God created sex was for procreation. The second reason is for pleasure. Proverbs 5 is 15 to 19. Drink water from your own well, share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Funny, I see men taking sermon notes for the first time ever in church. <laughs> so this verse talks about protecting sex outside of your marriage. It describes the woman as a well and as a man as a spring. And God yourself from sex outside of your marriage. But then he talks about intentionally pursuing intimacy in your marriage. He talks about sexual intimacy for couples as something to delight in. May you always be captivated by her love. Another translation says intoxicated by her love. Isn't that a verse that we wanna see today? That your wife, your marriage is a blessing, not a curse that it's not a misery and a, and a point of conflict and pain, but that we have flourishing, blessed marriages. Many of you sitting here today will say something, well, Paul, that is not my story. That is not the state of my marriage. My spouse doesn't ever want me or desire me. And I find it very interesting because many people think that I, our marriage is the only one struggling with this, but actually it's a common thing. It's a common struggle we see in marriages today. And again, the influence of Hollywood. You know this picture of a couple 
meeting each other, going on a date, and you know, before they're even out of the car, they're taking their clothes off, before they're even in the front door, they are all over each other. This picture of what it's supposed to be like, the story that Hollywood shares. I want to give a revelation that I had this week to a couple. Maybe there is one couple that is going to get this nugget of truth that could bring revelation to you. We get this Hollywood desire. We get spontaneous desire. But who knows that males and females are made up differently. Their physiology is different. Desire tends to work differently for men and for women. And in general, I'm generalizing for men, desire leads to sex, while for women, sex leads to desire. What I mean by this is for many couples that are struggling sexually that you would say today, oh, we don't have a great sex life and our sex isn't good at all. I want you to realize this fact about males and females, or that's a general thing about, about couples, that you have initiating desire versus receptive desire. Often the case, it is generally for males that they are the ones that initiate, have this initiating desire for sex. They have a hormone that makes them behave a certain way. And for many cases, for the lady, it is more of a receptive desire that you choose to do it, and while doing it, this desire then kicks in. Most women feel desire in the reverse order. She must choose to engage sexually with her husband, and then the desire is aroused. And when you look at the stats, 10% of couples both have initiating desire. You know that Hollywood picture of what intimacy and marriage and sex is all about? 10% of couples have that. 90% is this other way where you have someone that is more, carries the initiating desire and someone that has more the receptive desire. This is why being intentional about making time together as husband and a wife to be intimate with one another works. And I know some couples will have certain nights of the week where they are intentional about it. But I want us to get to the point where as men and women, as married couples, there is an openness of people that you trust, that you can confide in, that you can share these things with. Milan and I have people that encourage us and pray for us and speak into our marriage, that give us tips on how to have a healthy sex, sexuality in our marriage, what it means to love one another, what it means to serve one another, what it means not just to miss each other with our expectations on what we expect to happen in a healthy marriage. Couples that are comfortable talking about sex have much happier and healthier marriages. We talk about brakes and accelerators. Are you able to talk about some of the sexual things, that the, some of the turn-ons and the turn-offs, the sexual accelerators and the sexual brakes in your marriages? I want us to as married couples in this church, not just struggle alone and think we're the only ones struggling with this, we're the only ones going through this. When you look at the top three causes of divorce, do you know what they are? Sex, money, and in-laws. <laughs> this, is, this is the real thing. So if someone is more than likely going to get divorced, it's either going to be around sex, either someone has been sexually unfaithful, or sex is just not working and it's become a major problem. 
The other one in our economic climate now is financial stress and what that does to a marriage. And we see our economy and the state of our nation is not in a great place at the moment. So having open communication to talk about money and then how to deal with the in-laws or the in-loves that want to play a certain role in our family. So we've got reasons why God created sex, for reproduction, for pleasure, and lastly, for protection. And the verse that I started off reading, he said, now regarding this question, and again, he's answering questions. We don't have this question, we don't have this letter, but we see his response to the church of Corinth. He says, now regarding this question you asked about this letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. And the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited period so that you can give yourselves completely to pray. Afterwards, you should come back together so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Can you please point out for me the revolutionary statement in this passage? Shout it out if you see it. So the husband, the revolutionary statement is the husband is to give authority over to his, for the husband to, to have authority over his wife's body was nothing special or unique in that culture. In the first century, women in a sense were property to be owned. So it wasn't revelationary for him to say to them, guys, um, you, husbands have authority over the lady's body. The, the, the big idea was when he said, husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Paul follows the statement affirming the reversal that the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Clear, clearly pointed to a radical and unprecedented restriction on the husband's sexual freedom. It communicates negatively his obligation to refrain from engaging in sexual relations with anyone other than his wife and positivity the positive aspect is his obligation to fulfill his marital duty to provide her with the sexual pleasure and satisfaction that she needs. I get it that a verse like this, that a wife gives authority of her body over to her husband is a verse that can be abused. And please men, don't think you have the authority to, to say that the Bible says that your body is mine and it belongs to me. Because husbands, you are called to love your wife the way Christ loved the church. We do not demand, and we do not especially say, the Bible says that your body is my property and I can do with it as I please. We are called to serve and love. And then there is an encouragement, and I'm gonna end encouraging married couples this morning. I wanna close off by closing, by praying for marriages in our church. He says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. And I guess this is where it's good to have a men's ministry and a woman's ministry where we can share some of our challenges and what it means to be a man. 
I think the stat says that a male thinks about sex 19 times a day. What are his challenges when it comes to when he doesn't feel sexually fulfilled in his marriage? What are some of the temptations this, this verse talks about because of a lack of self-control and temptation out there with our smartphones and pornography and billboards and social media? What does it mean for a man to say, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon another woman with lust? But we excuse sin. Every time I have to deal with a couple where there is sin involved, there will always be a, an, a reason why someone has made certain decisions. Oh, well, my wife isn't attracted to me anymore. My wife doesn't want sex with me anymore. So, that, so then I have started doing this, and you excuse sin. I want to say the enemy will do everything he can to get you into bed before marriage and everything he can to keep you out of it while married. We talk about frequency, and I don't want to, don't have a long time to say much about this, but I want to say this. Your spouse is the only legitimate source of sexual fulfillment on earth. No one else can serve me this way other than my wife. And there's something about serving one another. When we talk about frequency, the big question in marriage is how often should we do it? And I want to say to you, each couple is different. I want to say that there are different seasons, couples that have little children and couples that have teenagers. And when you get older, things change. The question is always if he wants it twice a month and she wants it 12 times a month, what number do you settle on? Is it 12, 6, or 2? Or 24, how do you negotiate this question of frequency? But couples of different ages will answer this differently. And as I said, couples of different stages will answer this question. But I guess what Paul is encouraging these Christian believers in is that you, it has to be regular and it needs to be frequent. And if it's not, there are temptations and dangers out there. And I don't always know if couples are open and honest enough to talk about some of their temptations. I want to say that as I was preparing for the sermon, I was just reminded that I think it'll be 18 years in December that my wife and I shared our vows with one another to love each other for better, for worse. We didn't love each other because we said, you will make me happy. We, cho we chose one another and said, we will love you for better, for worse that we chose one another and we said that we will choose to serve and love even when the feelings of love aren't there anymore. And 17 years of marriage, guess what? That honeymoon stage is long gone. And we made it through the seven-year itch. And we've made it through these teen, teen years of where we don't have those goosebumps and feelings anymore. And it can be monotonous and it can be boring and it can be like we are two ships passing each other in the canal like we are just running a factory at home with children that have a schedule and things to do definitely and being intentional to be intimate and, and to connect emotionally and being intentional about date nights is difficult i want to say to you married couples you are not alone in the struggle more than likely, the married couple sitting next to you is going through the same challenges and struggles that you are. But what is it that God says in his word that he's encouraging us today as married couples? What is the context that he's created sex for? I want to remind you of your vows that you shared with your spouse. 
I know that Paul was answering questions with Christians about um, sleeping with prostitutes, and thank you, Lord, that I don't have to challenge the members of our church that are running off to prostitutes. But I am going to challenge you next week when it comes to areas of sexual immorality. I am faced with these questions all the time. How often should we have sex? How do I authentically honor my spouse sexually when I feel like I've lost my sex drive completely? He wants sex regularly, but I don't feel valued. I don't feel emotionally connected. Please help. It's okay to feel, is it okay to feel uncomfortable with not wanting to do things in the bedroom that my spouse wants to do? How do I navigate my emotions knowing that my husband struggles with pornography? And how do we spice things up when we are so exhausted and tired at the end of every night or at the end of every week? The sermon theme that we've had this year is, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want us to have those difficult conversations. And I want to invite the worship team up because we're going to close with a song. But I'm going to ask all the married couples in the church today to please stand. And I want to pray over marriages this morning. If your spouse is not here, you can also stand. And if you're young or you're not married or you want to just stretch out your hand to some of the people that are around you, I say this very carefully. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And just as God has a plan to flourish and bless and has a purpose for marriages, the enemy wants to see marriages broken. Why? Because it affects generation after generation. But who God has brought together, let no one separate. And Father, we just want to speak a Father's blessing over marriages represented in this auditorium. Holy Spirit, I want to invite you now by your presence that you would make your presence so tangible and real right in this moment. God, we want you to wrap your arms around marriages in this auditorium today. And we want to speak health. And we want to speak wholeness. And we want, to re- we want to speak passion and love and covenant commitment over marriages today. Lord, where couples may be facing pain and turmoil and struggles, deep frustration and resentment and hurt. God, we know that by your spirit, you can soften hearts today, that you by your spirit can reawaken a passion and a love for one another. God, that you, by your Spirit, can just help couples again to be intentional, to pursue one another through acts of service and love, through showing love through words and gifts and physical touch and affirmation, through quality time, through God, young couples that are coming home exhausted and tired after the busy day, that have no energy and anything left over for their spouse, God, I pray that you would just pour your spirit out afresh on marriages. Won't you rekindle their love and passion for one another? Won't you fan into flame that, that, um, that spark again? Let there be fresh passion, sexual passion, sexual intimacy, sexual wholeness in marriages. Thank you, God, that the best gift that we can give our children is to show a godly marriage that is on fire, that is deeply in love with one another. I pray, God, for your protection over marriages. 
And God, where we've allowed the enemy to come and to rob us of health, I wanna just pray, God, that you would show us how to put up those walls again and guard for the, guard the protection of marriages. Pray for health. Where marriages are unhealthy in this auditorium, I wanna speak health over them. I wanna speak joy. I wanna speak great. Oh, just your fruit to be so evident in these marriages.